You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and um, I'm always happy to be back with you as we continue to try to manage our new normal. I hope everyone is managing okay. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Eileen Heisman. And Eileen is the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. Um, Eileen continues to be a nationally recognized expert on charitable and planned giving. And we're going to have a really great conversation this evening with her. Uh, Be sure to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you all kinds of great information and news from their companies in the industries of healthcare, finance, legal matters, military affairs, and technology. And don't forget to sign up for the podcast and our newsletter by visiting womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. I also hope that some of you were able to listen last night to my interview with Heather Cohen as we launched our first show on WABC in New York. We are very excited to be broadcasting in our second market as well. So now I'm very honored and excited to have with me this evening Eileen Heisman, again, the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sue. It's great to, to have you. And I, I know how busy things have been for you right now. And of course, complicated by, you know, us all having to pivot and, and be working from home. Uh, how are you managing that, actually? What's, what have you had to do differently um, in spite of the pandemic? 
Um, I had a quick notice that I had to stay home. I had been in New York the second week in March, just before things closed. And I realized when I got back that I probably shouldn't have been there. I was up twice. And so I started not to feel well and stayed home and right around the March 8th. And I got a computer set up and I got two screens about three weeks later. And I and then by Monday, everybody was working from home and we just had to recreate a new normal. And we had an enormously talented IT team who had done all this disaster planning for snowstorms and for electrical outages, which we had had in the past. Not that many, but we needed emergency backup because we're national or even global. So when we went to have the, our pandemic response, we actually were completely ready for it in a way that I could never have imagined. And I had sat, I had sat in on a lot of those meetings, and I thought they were pretty boring and difficult to sit in. And I would listen to everything we were going to do if anything would happen. And all of a sudden, it did happen. And I was delighted that I had a team of people that were so prepared because – we put 100 people at home within two days. We're completely up and running. Even less than two days. It was about 36 hours. Almost everybody was up and running. And it took an extra few weeks to get additional equipment to people's houses. But we're basically working safely on a VPN from home in ways that we couldn't have imagined. And we've been really, really busy. Um, it's, I think it's harder to manage and harder to meet with people. But we've been making do and we've been really proud to be able to be grant making during COVID and the social justice events that are going on in this in the country around the world. That's actually. awesome. Thank goodness for those people who, you know, are forward thinkers and, and think ahead and plan like that. Um, I don't know that, you know, everyone really was in, in that kind of situation. So it was a lot of last minute. Um, listen, I, Aline, I want to talk a little bit about your, your background and your upbringing, because I know that in a conversation we had, um, you had a very, very strong relationship with, with both of your parents who really um, had a strong impact um, on the work that you're doing today. I wonder if you can tell our listeners a, a little bit about that, where you grew up and, and what mom and dad did. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Horsham, Pennsylvania, which is a, was very rural. It was almost all farms, but my parents were both very urban. My father had grown up primarily in the Bronx, and my mother was from West Philadelphia. And so while they moved to this very rural place, which is now kind of built up, but it was very, it was all farms, essentially, they brought with them their urban ways. So I was really focused on education and um, cultural things, and we got the New York Times every day. And there was an emphasis on education and a kind of worldliness and not everybody around me had that, so I felt really lucky. Well, actually, I felt like a fish out of water a lot, but I, I couldn't ever turn off what my family thought was important. And my dad was really into other cultures and going to cultural events that celebrated other food, foods from other countries and world cultures in a way that um, I don't think anybody else I knew was doing. He actually loved Irish and Scottish music, though he was a German Jew, basically. And so we went to all these Irish and Scottish festivals. And, and uh, But more than that, I mean, he just celebrated other cultures in ways that I, I, I look back and it really, really shaped my view of the world in ways that I don't think my other friends had and my my mother was a psychiatric nurse and um worked in a state a psychiatric hospital 
but also was very active in the League of Women Voters and um, our Girl Scout troop. And she distributed the Salk vaccine with me as her helper when I was a little girl. So between my dad, who also loved inventions, kind of being this invention-focused other culture appreciator, and my mother, who was so involved in the community, um, I got from both sides um, a lot of interest in the world and a focus on making the world a better place and, and eyes in the back of my head about how important people were. And they didn't have to be people like me. They didn't have to look like me. They didn't have to act like me, that there was a human uh, value and goodness in people and that it was my job to sort of figure it out. And they never said that to me. They just modeled it by how mm. they behaved. Yeah. Sometimes I think, you know, witnessing that in in our parents is is, is really one of the greatest lessons and, you know, how they're living their life. Um Tell me how you, you know, watching your mother, um, did she, did she have conversations with you about your future? You know, what, what she hoped um, you would be doing down the road or again, you know, was it really just your um, watching them and then de- deciding for yourself that you wanted to, to pursue something in the um, charitable field? I don't remember my mother talking to me about it, but I I never felt like I was gated in any way. I mean, my mother, I remember my mother telling me that when she was growing up, women who were bright were either, you know, nurses, teachers, or maybe secretaries or something. I mean, she, she, she wanted to be a doctor, and her father told her that women didn't become doctors. And she regretted that for her whole life, that she didn't have the chance to do that. And she'd had a scholarship to Penn, and it was taken away from her when they found out she was Jewish. Oh, my gosh. So she was always really wounded about wow. that. Yeah. That was, she graduated high school in, in 36. And my, but it was my father who told me. My, remember my father told me that I could be president of the United States if I wanted to be. Like, he just didn't have any limit on me. Like, don't, by gender, by by my anything, by my religion, anything that I that the opportunities yeah. were out there. He always told me that a job that you I mean, hold that thought. We'll, we'll pick up with that when we come back. We're going to go into our first break. Stay with us for our military watch and our health watch. We'll be right back with Eileen Heisman. Now, the women to watch military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. Now, did you know that there is a group in our communities that when their efforts are tallied, are saving the Department of Defense, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and our state governments over $14 billion a year? Now, this group is the over 5 million Americans who are caring for our ill or wounded veterans, 1 million of which are a group who are caring for veterans who served after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Now, sometimes these responsibilities only last a few months. For others, it's a lifetime. Military caregivers of the post-9-11 generation of veterans face very unique challenges. They're often younger than traditional caregivers and are balancing caregiving, their own careers, and may have young children to care for as well. A RAND study found that the post-9-11 military caregivers are four times more likely to suffer from depression compared to non-caregivers. These are the unsung heroes of the military community. We who have served in the military understand that when a loved one chooses to serve, their entire family and close friends also serve. 
Even after the service member hangs up the uniform, military caregivers continue to serve our nation as they aid veterans through their recovery and rehabilitation. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation understands these challenges and works to empower and support military caregivers across our country. We at Comcast believe in the power of the Dole mission and have partnered to create their Hidden Heroes Cities program which is a growing network of cities and counties across the U.S. dedicated to streamlining services for military caregivers and sharing best practices. You can learn more by visiting hiddenheroes.org. If you have the opportunity, seek out and support these hidden heroes in your communities. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. This is a very special evening for women to watch. The journey began in Philadelphia, then we were heard in Nashville. And tonight, our first show in the Big Apple, New York City. A special congratulations to our host, Sue Rocco, for her success. And a truly colossal thank you from me, Sue. You invited me as the first member of your watch team, and I'm honored and excited to be part of this wonderful show. For our listeners, I'm a gastroenterologist at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, so I'm not very popular because I do colonoscopy exams. Over 30 years ago, I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, probably the first woman to train in GI in New York City, and it's great to be back. Since then, I've practiced in my hometown of Philadelphia, and I'm blessed to have had the chance to care for thousands of patients. One thing I've learned for sure, as a wife and mother first and a busy physician, It's easier for women to nurture everyone else and put ourselves last on the to-do list. So, whenever I give a lecture in the community, I always share this message with the ladies. Treat yourself like a diva. If you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. And at the end of each show, the final message will go out to you, my divas. Each week, I'll present a common medical top in clear detail so you'll be able to make better decisions for yourself and your loved ones. Recently, I became the host of the only all-medical show in Philadelphia that airs in three states and on national podcasts. Tune in on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock to Your Radio Doctor by downloading the free app Radio.com or listen to any of the shows on our website, YourRadioDoctor.com. So divas, tune in each week to Women to Watch and visit YourRadioDoctor.com. And thanks for the warm welcome from the city that never sleeps. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Welcome back. I'm joined this evening by Eileen Heisman, who is president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust, um, and actually here just outside of the Philadelphia area. Eileen, I understand you um, received your bachelor's in psychology from Carnegie Mellon and a master's in social work from the University of Michigan. And I was curious how your psychology background um, affected your ability 
to kind of connect with and understand people better? Uh, so Carnegie Mellon is not your normal psychology arena and how they teach it. It was a lot about cognitive psychology, how people make decisions, how people process information, how memory works, how you learn. And so I do use it. I use it all the time. One of the things I try to do in my work as a manager, and, you know, we've grown from um, zero assets under management almost 25 years ago to having um, 11 and almost 11 and a half billion now. So, you know, and, and in order to get there, we've actually raised about 17 billion. And I now have 100 people here, right? So from two people to 100. So in order to do that, to grow, part of what I would do always is watch how people learn, watch what people are interested in, what tasks they go to first. If I, you know, especially when we were small and I could tell that. I often, I ask that question in interviews all the time. If you have a thing to do, what do you do first? Because usually people do what they like mm. first. Um, and I, I watch how people make decisions. And so I, I, I did, a, I was a research assistant in a multi-complex decision-making project in one of my summers. And that project was so formidable in how I look at how people make decisions, how they sort information, how they eliminate things, how they rank things, you know, prioritize. And all those come into my um, ability and interest in how, how people behave, how they perform, especially. And I try to play to people's strengths. I mean, I, it, it, that's true of me. I mean, there's certain things I'm better at than others. And I knew I should, if I knew, for example, if I was ever going to be a CEO, that I should have really good finance people around me and accountants and budgeting, because I, I just knew that I could do that from the seat of my pants for small amounts of money. But when it got to be larger amounts, I, I would need more support in that. And so I have a really strong accounting and finance team around me and an operating, a chief operating officer. And it, and so you have to play to your strengths and know what your weaknesses are. And so as a manager, you really have to know that about your reports, but you also have to know it about yourself. And and so all that, a lot of that was shaped by my time at Carnegie Mellon. And Carnegie Mellon is also a ripe place for innovation. And I think it also gave me permission when I came out into the work world not to be afraid to innovate and to do things that hadn't been tried before or that in a new mm. angle. And um, I really, really attribute that part of my behavior and thinking. I had it always inside of me, but it really nurtured it and gave me permission to do it in a way that um, that worked in, in, the, in the work world, really. And not everybody has that opportunity, but I was really lucky mm. to have it. Um, you know what? I read um, this week in a New York Times piece, uh, giving has surged during the coronavirus. Um, eclipsing donations during the 2008 recession and after September 11. Uh, are you surprised by that? No, I'm not surprised. I, um, I'm actually a fundraiser by training, though. I really don't do much of that work anymore at all. But one of the things that in that profession is, uh, is called how you make the case for support, which is how do you explain to donors what the need is? How do you explain to donors? And if People in the fundraising profession need to know really well, whether it's a video or, or, or a, a YouTube, you know, or a, a printed piece or a direct mail piece or email. When you're asking somebody for money, you have to always make the case for support. What's compelling? What's the sense of urgency? And in COVID, it's being presented to us everywhere all the time in all different mediums. I mean, we're hearing on the radio, we're reading the newspaper, we're talking to our friends. So this incredible need of what's going on in the world, not just the United States, is being presented to people all the time. And I think, I think people who 
see it and are listening and pay attention and have means, whether the means is an extra $10 or an extra million dollars, are saying, you know, what can I do to make this problem go away? And so it doesn't surprise me at all because we're so surrounded by the problem. And I think not, it does, not everybody has those impulses and instincts about helping to make things better, but many, 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 many people do. It's a strong part of our culture. So I'm not surprised at all. I'm always worried when it's out of the headlines and out of the sense of urgency, things wane. So um, when things, for example, you know, if, if, a, if a vaccine comes and starts to really address it or better clinical treatment comes for people that do have it, we might see some of the money mm-hmm. waning and going into other things or people going back to their other other giving behaviors. But I think um, the reason after September 11th, it surged, after Haiti, it surged, after natural disasters, it surges. But this sustained um, kind of world pandemic, I mean, I barely know anybody who's doing nothing. I mean, everybody's doing something in their own way. It's not necessarily philanthropic, but ways in which they can either protect themselves or help other people. So I, I, I just hope um, one of the hopes in the philanthropic world, money is given away about 2% of the gross domestic product annually. It's almost been the same for the last 45 years. There's been a lot of projects that have been focusing on how do we get from 2% to 3%. And it's possible that the pandemic will have maybe bumped us up in the giving percentage. But can we sustain it, I think, is the next mm. question. That's interesting. Um, you know, when I think of it, so you work with um, donors and Sometimes when I just think about the everyday person who wants to be charitable and wants to give, sometimes I think when they haven't determined where, like what area, what is a place that's important to them has some meaning. Um, When you look at the news, it's almost overwhelming because there's so much need in so many areas. So I wonder, you know, what are good questions for someone to ask themselves in order to determine where their giving is going to be. And you know what? I'm going to ask you to hold your um, thought for that for when we come back. We're going to go into our next break for our legal watch and our finance watch. I'm talking to Eileen Heisman, the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. We'll be right back. Now, now the women to watch. Legal watch. Legal watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard's Bar Law Firm for Legal Watch. Across the country, employees are returning back to work and employers are taking precautions to keep their people safe and productive. This balancing act is made easier with the COVID-19 Employee Benefits Checklist Ballard's Bar has compiled. You can request a copy of this checklist from our COVID Resource Center found on Ballard's Bar's website. Another way we can support your business is with our webinar titled, I Won't Come to Work, Legal and Practical Guidance for Employers Facing Accommodation Requests During COVID-19. You can access that on our website too. It addresses issues like employees that are willing to come back to work, but are reluctant to play by the new rules, like wearing a mask, social distancing, or complying with reduced capacity requirements. My partners, Shannon Farmer and Brian Pedro, along with Elliot Griffin, run through a series of case studies to explore the legal and public health matters applicable to each. They also provide practical solutions for employers. The next several months will be a tightrope act for businesses, and solid legal guidance is a must. Ballard has attorneys tracking legislation around the clock, and we stand ready to help you with any questions or issues that pop up. It's a changing landscape for everyone, and it's important not to make costly mistakes. This is Nicole Hitner for your Legal Watch, and we're here to help. 
If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Many of us look forward to retirement, at least from full-time work, and enjoying a comfortable lifestyle. But that takes planning, and studies have shown that many people spend more time planning a two-week vacation than they do planning for a retirement that may last decades. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's too late to start planning and saving. It's never too late to develop good habits. Start with a written plan that includes realistic savings goals and a budget to help you understand where you're spending. Another mistake is not taking advantage of employer-sponsored retirement plans. If you're able, contribute at least as much as the employer will match. This is free money. If you're 50 or over, you may be able to contribute up to $26,000 per year on a tax-deferred basis. Keep in mind that retirement plan accounts are intended to provide for your needs later in life, not as a savings account for current expenses. Try to avoid taking funds from your retirement accounts before age 59 and a half as there's a 10% penalty on the amount withdrawn in addition to the income tax on the distribution. For now, there is an exemption from the penalty for those directly affected by COVID-19. However, growth on those assets could be lost forever. We all want our children to succeed, and for some this means paying for college so that their kids graduate debt-free. But if you choose to fund their education at the expense of your retirement, you may have difficulty making up the difference. And there are other risks, such as having to help adult children and aging parents, not anticipating your own longevity, health care, and long-term care expenses, then inflation, tax changes, and market returns. So please, plan ahead to avoid most of these mistakes. Find a qualified financial advisor to help you navigate through all these risks to the retirement that you are envisioning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who have lost confidence in their retirement readiness, don't give up hope. You can get back on track by upping your savings as soon as you can afford to, using an appropriate asset allocation, and perhaps making some adjustments to your budget. It may take effort, but being ready for retirement can be worth it. This is Terry. Peace out. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you for being with us. I'm speaking to Eileen Heisman this evening, the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust, which is a it's it's a global organization. Is that right, Eileen? Because I think, yeah, that's right. We have an office in London. Yeah. Just before the break, I had asked you uh, about what question an individual could ask themselves to determine where they can best give. So that's a question I get asked often. And I think the first thing you have to do is look inside yourself. What interests you? What excites you? What problems in the world um, make you ponder solutions? And what motivates you to want to get involved? And, and when I say involved, it can be money. It can be volunteer time. It can be, you know, it just can be admiring something if you don't have enough money to do to actually, you know, contribute. But you know, what are the two or three things that really excite you and or, or worry you about our society or, the, you know, the society at large? And it could be the environment. It could be education. It could be social justice. It could be a lot of things. It could be the arts. And and then what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to intervene in that issue? Do you want to 
Do you want to do something close to home? Do you want to do something national or global? You know, so do you want small organizations, medium, big organizations? And then, you know, if it's something if it's like a healthcare issue, you know, are you interested in the prevention of this problem happening? Or do you want to help people that already have it? Or do you want to treat the tail a bit of what happens over mm. the long run with kids and problems like you know, so there's all these intervention points that where philanthropy can happen, organized, very organized philanthropy. So you have to, it, it's like it's three to four dimensions. And a lot of people don't want to be bothered when they hear about my dimensions, but you have to at least narrow it down to two or three causes and decide if you want to be local or larger and then start doing research. I mean, I always say, you know, people spend an hour looking at a restaurant, but their philanthropy, they don't have the patience for it. But, you know, spend an hour either reading about it. Google is amazing. I mean, when I first got in this business, Google didn't exist. You know, look to see who's on the board. See if you know anybody who's involved. See who else is giving money. Every charity does a tax filing called a 990. Look at that. Look at the media. And then, you know, get a three or four dimensional view of the organization and what they're doing. And then I always say this, give them unrestricted money and and i wouldn't like if you wanted to help kids in after school programs don't give to five programs give to one make it a larger amount of money and stay with it for a couple of years and watch it don't be fickle don't move from year to year one of the issues about these small charities or medium-sized charities they spend a fair amount of money um raising money right because because and when you have fickle donors who just change all the time it, it gets to be more expensive for the entity so so pick those that you like and then and then put make or, make fewer larger gifts to them and then stay involved with three or four years and for three or four years you know make sure you get their newsletter and the report whether it's digital now or, or paper um have, make a relationship with them call the development office and see or call the ceo if it's a small charity and and don't just, just, you know, so try not to be impulsive. Mm. Try to be very yeah. planful and don't change year to year. Yeah, Stay that's involved. great advice. Um, Eileen, the work that you do is incredibly meaningful. And I'm wondering how you feel you have personally evolved or grown um, throughout your career um, with the experiences you have in the work that you do. I um, I feel so lucky every day, and it's it's not lost to me. Every day I realize that I'm able to do something to make a living that I just love doing. I love the idea that my job enables people to give back to society in all different ways that they think are important. And I feel really lucky because I know a lot of people who have a certain set of beliefs and values at home, but at work they're not important, they're not relevant, they don't even come into play. And I have a chance to to live. I always say I breathe the same air at home as I do at work. Wow. So I'm able to realize kind of my, yeah, and I just, it's, it's like it's like being a big blanket wrapped mm. around you. So I, I, I feel really lucky I can do that. I also have worked, I didn't grow up um, in a wealthy family. We were very, very, very middle class. When I grew up in a very tiny house, so the level of affluence that I get to see and experience and with the donors we have or something that was way outside the anything that I knew or understood. So it felt like I've really been able to see a view of the world um, of of how our economy affects people. And I, there's this big gap right now between the have and the have-nots, and I think it's gotten even bigger. And there's the, all the racial issues that have come up in the last um, few months. 
you know, that I've been at a really unusual spot where I see people of wealth who really want to give back and be philanthropic and be anonymous. And I see other folks that are really, really angry and upset about how unfair the world is to them. And I feel like I'm perched in a spot where I can kind of, I, I can see all the sides of this that um, enable me to have a kind of empathy and understanding for both the people of wealth and the, and the people who are suffering a great deal and seeing how they're trying to link mm. together. Um, I, I don't get as angry. I think when I was younger, I, these things would get me really angry. I feel like one of the things I'm able to do in this a donor advised fund world is have a vehicle for which people of wealth can get money out into the sector. We give out about 20% of our corpus a year. So there's a lot of money that's moving it's not enough. The government really has to have policies to change. Philanthropy is a drop in the bucket compared to government policy and government money. So it's not the answer, but it can really seed ideas. And so it, it, it's been a privilege to do this. Do I think that we're perfectly perched to, like, magically make this go away? There's, there's no way philanthropy can do it alone. But I feel like we're a part of a solution. Um, I think when I was younger, I didn't really, I don't think I could have grasped it at the level I do now. I think some of the, you know, going to social work school, there's a lot of focus on social justice and I have a great amount of understanding and sympathy for all the problems. And I wish I had better solutions that were quicker. Stay with us as we go into our last break for our Tech Watch with Pathways Consulting Group. And we'll be back with Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. In 2020, we're experiencing so much change. In some cases, we're being fast-forwarded into the future way that work gets done and where it's done from. As example, it's now becoming the new norm for companies to allow you and even mandate you to work from home. You may be finding yourself transforming your bedroom, living room, or kitchen into your new home office. When interviewing for a job, you may be asked if you're equipped to work from home or you may be applying for a 100% work-from-home job for the first time. Companies are fast-pacing automation so that work can get to people faster and more efficiently. Things are changing and changing fast. We see it with our clients every day. With this change is incredible opportunity, especially for women who want to break into the technology industry and have or want the ability to work from home. Online education has increased, and many not-for-profit organizations are providing free training for people of diversity who want to change their career. Many universities have increased their virtual classroom and class offerings. To me, the new norm is presenting massive opportunity that can be leveraged to put women in more technology roles. In previous segments, I've discussed the types of technology roles that are out there. Developers, solution architects, business analysts, quality testers, project managers. These are just a few that we hire at Pathways. If you're looking for a career change in technology and want to explore training, there's an incredible website called Udemy. That's U-D-E-M-Y dot com. At this website, you can research all types of training and research all types of technology roles. The job market in technology is shifting, and maybe the time is right for more companies to incorporate more diversity into their groups to create a higher collective intelligence. Studies have shown that companies with higher gender diversity teams enjoy better returns and are more likely to outperform companies that don't. If a career in technology is of interest and you want to learn more, feel free to reach out to me at mary at pathwayscg.com. 
Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm talking to Eileen Heisman, the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. Um, Eileen, I wanted to ask you... When we were talking in the previous segment and you were describing your work and and how you work with donors who are, um, you know, have typically extreme wealth. And then there's um, people that are struggling and need the help. I felt as though you really have this inside look to the truth of what's really going on when people are making uh, having opinions about who's giving, who's not and what is enough. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, I think I'm in an unusual spot in that I, you know, I can have conversations with people of wealth who are really interested in giving back, but we're also in touch with the entities that are receiving the money and are having uh, living close to the edge or maybe over the edge in different ways. And I, um, you know, I wasn't raised with a lot of money. I was raised really, really modestly. And so I, I have a great degree of empathy of watching people that you know, when people, they talk about living hand to mouth and the folks that are getting, you know, all this relief during COVID, you know, I can identify with all that because I can imagine as a kid, I probably would have been in a situation where my family would have been in the part of a PPP loan. But I, I, I realized this a couple of years ago that I was, um, I was seeing a lot of the folks of wealth and not as much of the front line. So I took a sabbatical, which I had as part of my job, and I, I spent time working at the Broad Street Ministries, which is a place where homeless people get services during the day. It's not a shelter. But I, I worked there, and part of the reason I did that is I wanted to remind myself that the people there um, were part of my world, and I wasn't seeing them as much as I may have in other jobs I was taken. You know, my mother was a psychiatric nurse in a state hospital for a long time, and um, I worked in mental health. And so I had early in my career, that part of the world was much more present for me. But I, you know, when I, in this job, I, I don't see it as much. So I feel like I can straddle both of those. But I, I you know, in, in the earlier part of my life, I much more identified with the, the strain of what it's like for people to live. I had I mentioned before when we were talking that, um, I was only allowed to spend money on two things when I was growing up freely. One was books, and the other one was um, anything related to sewing. Because I was a pretty good sewer, and I made a lot of my own clothes, and my parents would rather me do that than go out and buy me things. So I sewed a lot, um, and I also read a lot. And and so I feel like that was an investment in who my, what my parents were able to give to me then and the value of, you know, humans, right, and, and empathy. It was enormously a big part of my um, my background. So, you know, fast forward now, I, you know, with the at Carnegie Mellon and innovation and making the world a better place and my wish to kind of help the human condition, you know, I feel like I've been able to 
do that in some little way here. And, and, you know, philanthropy is not the only answer. Government support is really key to addressing a social problem, but philanthropy can seed really good Mm. ideas, but it's not going to create all the answers that we need. And I wish I could do more. I mean, I wish MPT could do more, but we're doing an enormous amount. 20% of our assets go out every year in grants. And I think we're, we are helping, but you know, it takes a village, not just to raise a child, but to make the world a better place. So the help has to come from the private sector, the public sector, you know, the social sector. And, and if it doesn't, you know, we're really in trouble. So I have done my part. I am doing my part, but it, you know, we all pitch it, you know, it's, a, it's a really a group effort. And I, I love the fact that our donors are interested in all different things. So, we're, you know, we're not just helping in one area where our grants go out all over the map and literally and figuratively all over the map and all different topics and all different causes, but also around are, the world. Are you seeing a difference in, in the areas that people are giving today, for instance, healthcare care or, or food banks or small businesses, because every area is hurting? Um, we're seeing a lot of money going to human services and healthcare. I mean, COVID really triggered a lot of money. Fewer dollars are going out to the arts. A lot more money is going to healthcare and human services and human basic human needs. Excuse me. And then when the social justice issues came up, a lot of money um, was going to social justice organizations, organizations that um, address the wealth disparity in the United States um, for uh things related to police reform, some the um, ACLU, the uh, all different kinds of uh, organizations that help people of color. So um, and social justice issues generally. And I seeing that was not surprising. In fact, I think it's all I think COVID created a climate and the and then, of course, the George Floyd thing happened and then that really ignited an interest in a really important topic that had been probably underpresented to us for years. And so we're making up for a lot of yeah. lost time. Uh, so I am, we are seeing that. And I think the question is, I think, you know, a year from now, two years from now, when things may be calmer, I mean, I don't know how long a vaccine is going to take to really be distributed a safe one. Um, you know, what's going to happen? What's our new normal going to look like in the percentage of money people are giving away, what they're giving to, are these giving patterns going to be permanent? Or are they going to be temporary and people are going to go back? Um, I think our normal is not going to change for a very long time. So our philanthropy normal probably isn't going to change for a long time. So we may be seeing these shifts um, that are going to be more permanent. I just want to put a shout out to the performing arts, which I think are an important part of society for everybody. You know, lots of arts organizations are suffering a great deal because they don't have yes. audiences that, that, that yes. the door, you know. And so I think for little kids and grown-ups and people of all colors and all different art forms, the visual arts, performing arts, I think we're going to be struggling with them mm-hmm. for a long time. You know, for, for the listeners who perhaps are not familiar with your organization, what types of resources do you provide? for donors? So donors can create an entity called a donor advised fund. It's like a charitable savings account and they can do it directly on our website or we also have relationships with large financial institutions. So if they have money at a large financial institution, we may be a partner with them. They, they create these accounts, they name them, they give us an asset. Most of it's appreciated securities or cash, but we also take illiquid assets. We liquidate it, and then they have money to give away as grants, and they can give away grants online, just like you would look at your banking account. You would look at your donor advised fund account, and you can make grant recommendations. And we make grants all throughout the week. They get approved, they get vetted and approved. So you make a grant recommendation. We look to make sure it's a legitimate charity for a legitimate purpose, and if that works, we we um, we make the grant. 
We also have a philanthropic services team that help our donors answer questions about philanthropic questions, um, any issues. We have a great blog that's public on our website called The Philanthropist. And if you're interested in a lot of different topics in philanthropy, we, we have um, recommendations for ways to look at social problems, economic problems um, in the social sector, all the different kinds of ways in which we view the world through our donors' eyes. So if you look at The Philanthropist, there'll be tax and giving kind of suggestions, but we'll also talk about um, grant-making strategies that people okay. use for different problems they can help solve. So um, go on the NP Trust, NP Trust. Um, is our website, nptrust.org, and you can find a lot of resources there. There's also articles, newspaper, you know, references, um, and we do a donor advice fund giving report every year that's published in uh, November, and that surveys a 1,000 charities that, that, that hold donor advice funds, and we talk about the trends in giving and donor advice That's excellent. Eileen, um, I mean, we just have a, a few seconds left, and um, I just, you know, you've been so incredibly successful in this arena what do you think it is about you as a person, as a leader, that uh, motivates your team and, and has people, you know, um, motivated? I, it's funny, a question. I think people talk to me. I've heard this back, so I'm just going to mirror. I, people say about how passionate I am about my work, and it's infectious. And so I bring a lot of passion and interest in facts and figures, but it, and I try to integrate them all. You know, I teach a course in philanthropy yes. at Penn and the passions in the classroom, but my passion is also at work every day. So I don't come in kind of rolling my eyes and saying, I wish I was someplace mm. else. I really like being here. And I think we do. That's important awesome. Work. What a gift that is. I wish we had more time, Eileen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to share a little bit about your story. I appreciate it. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. And, and it's great to highlight women. We have, we have a, a great half the race is here to be celebrated. So yes. thank you very oh, much. Oh, you're to welcome. You. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to our watch team and sponsors for their continued support. And thanks for tuning in. Have a great and safe week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.